There is a very important question about Christianity that I think very few people really consider, or at least if they consider it, they don't verbalize it. And the question is this. Is Jesus worth following? Is Jesus worth following? You see, I think there are many people out there who reject Jesus, but not because of who he is, but it's because of other things. If you get into a spiritual conversation with someone or, or begin asking about Jesus, you may hear responses like, you know, I really don't care much for church. I think it's kind of boring, kind of irrelevant. Or, you know, Christians, they've, they've hurt me in the past. I don't want anything to do with them. Or you might hear people say, you know, I'm really spiritual, but I'm not really very religious. Or they might say, you know, the Christians, they're just a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. I mean, you may hear any number of statements like these, but the ironic thing about them is that none of them are really directly about Jesus himself. They're about other things that may be connected with Jesus, but they aren't statements about whether Jesus himself is truly worthy of following. Now, I think this question of is Jesus worth following is even relevant and important for Christians to ask. Because the value that we place on Jesus, if we are Christians, or the the level to which we treasure him, is directly proportional to how much we prioritize him in our life. I think there's really a quite direct uh, relationship there between how precious he is to us, how much we treasure him, and how much we prioritize him. Because we may say with our mouths that Jesus is important, that he's number one, that, that he is the king, kings, and lord of lords, and he, he should be on the throne of my life. But functionally, he may very well be down at like number five, number six, or number 12 on our priority list. In the same way, I think that the, the level to which we prioritize and value and treasure Jesus is in direct proportion to the fruitfulness of our witness for him to the world around us. Because we may say to our co-workers or our family or our friends, you know, Jesus is really important. You should really follow him. It's really transformed my life. But if they look at us and recognize, you know, what really matters to them is money or popularity or how well they do their job. Or their family. I mean, those things aren't bad things, but if people look at us and they recognize, you know what, they, the, this person who claims to love Christ above all else, but really they get more passionate about these other things, there's a disjunction there. It doesn't make as much sense for, the, for people like that. And so for us, it's incredibly important whether or not we're followers of Christ to really weigh, is Jesus worth following? I know for many people, even who are trying to follow Christ, it can get hard. And they can wonder, you know what? Maybe I should just throw in the towel. You get kind of tired of following Christ, perhaps. Maybe, maybe the, the downs of life, the challenges, the trials are just weighing on you. And you just wonder, where is God in the midst of all this? Well, in that circumstance, it's really important that we ask, okay, is Jesus worth following? And just take a hard look at Jesus and, and really see, who, see him for who he is. Because if we see Jesus as a great treasure to be valued and to be cherished, we will hold on to him no matter how hard life gets. But if in reality our view of him gets kind of cloudy and we aren't seeing him very clearly and, and our view of him is going like this, it's only a matter of time before we let him go. Today I want to make the case that Jesus is worth following with wholehearted devotion. That he's worth giving everything we have, everything we are in pursuit of him. Because he is a treasure that is like nothing else. 
I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We're in a series right now called A King is Born. And in this series, we're focusing on this one passage out of Isaiah chapter 9 that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. But it has incredible relevance to us today as we're celebrating the birth of Christ because this passage is directly about Jesus himself. So we're going to be looking at just really one verse here in Isaiah 9. But before we do that, I'm going to pray for us and we'll dig in. Father, as you come once again to this passage, it's a passage that uh, for many of us is familiar. It's one we've heard read at Christmas many times. If we've been here the last few weeks, we've heard it discussed here. But I pray that you will give us ears to hear and, and a heart to understand in fresh ways the significance of this passage. And that as we dig into this passage and we see its truthfulness, that we will also see with fresh eyes the greatness of Jesus Christ that our hearts will cry out like the Apostle Paul, that I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, may you increase in our minds. May we decrease. and May we grow in our devotion to you as we see you more clearly and more joyously. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So we've spent a lot of time the last few weeks digging into this passage on various levels. But I want to focus us today on these four titles here. I'd call them four superlative titles in verse 6. It says, And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This, this is talking here about a coming king, the Messiah, who, who God is speaking through Isaiah to foretell that he's not going to come for another 700 years. The people of Judah don't know the exact timetable, but here it's very clear that he is someone incredibly special. And the exact wording here in the original Hebrew language in verse 6, it says, And his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name shall be called. But we have to understand that when Isaiah is talking here about his name, it's not a name as we typically think of today. It's not a name like Brandon or, or Jim or Jenny or, or Ruth or Samson or Samuel or anything like that. It's not that type of first name that we typically think of when we think of names. It's more of a title. It's more of a character description. We use uh, terms like this quite a bit today. They're, they're very common. If you are on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, if you read blogs, odds are good you see biographies of people that use terms or phrases to describe their character, describe their activity, describe what they do. For instance, yesterday, I'm not on Twitter, but I said, okay, Twitter is a good place to look because, you know, you're, you're constricted to a certain number of characters on Twitter. And you can have these biographies to describe yourself. So I just did a random search, and I found a Twitter account from someone named Amanda. I have no idea who she is. Um, she'll probably never know I'm quoting from her um, because she lives in California. But here it is. I mean, just, just a character description. It's kind of like these, these statements we have here in Isaiah 9. 
Here's her description. 20-something USC grad, news junkie, business and tech geek, Lakers fan, social media enthusiast, music lover, foodie, married to my, married to my iPhone. Now that's her description. These, these little pithy phrases that describe her, who she is, at least from her perspective. Now, no one would make the mistake of going up to her and saying, hey, foodie, or hey, social media enthusiast. I mean, maybe a friend might mock her in that way. But no, you don't do that. You don't mistake that for her actual name. But these are titles, character descriptions that describe her. And this type of thing is even caught on in church circles. A few years ago, there was a conference in which um, the speakers were introduced by videos that used these, these catchy phrases. And one of the speakers, let me give you an example of this, was a man named Jeff Vanderstelt. Here's how he was described. I mean, described as pastor of Soma Community. It's, it's a church community up in the Pacific Northwest. But it says there, futuristic visionary, movement leader, gospel equipper, strategic catalyst. It's these little phrases that describe him. Now, no one, again, except friends who are mocking him, might go up to him and say, hey, strategic catalyst. I mean, because that's not his name, but it is a title, a descriptive phrase that helps explain who this person is, what this person does, what he is like. And so we come back here to Isaiah chapter 9 and see a list of phrases like this, and they're descriptive titles. They're describing who this king is going to be like. Now, we need to understand that these types of little phrases that describe someone's character or someone's activity, they're not new recently. Now, the new thing about them recently is that you have ordinary people describing themselves with these little phrases. But for, for hundreds or even thousands of years, you've had people who use catchy phrases to describe themselves. The people who do that are kings. There is a term known as a throne name. And in various cultures down through history, particularly cultures around Israel, say two, 3,000 years ago, when a king would ascend to the throne, the king would take on what are known as throne names. Now, these are not their literal birth name, but they are names, they are titles, they are character descriptions of what that king aspires to be or who that king seeks to emulate, or what type, what type of kingdom that king wants to rule over. The, the Egyptian pharaohs were the most famous for this, and they sometimes went a little bit over the top in some of the descriptions they came up with. Let me give you an example of how, how a pharaoh, an Egyptian king, may describe himself. He may use the terms mighty bull, dispenser of truth, giver of life, Risen with the fiery serpent, son of the gods. Now, these, these are just high, exalted type of phrases. Like I said, the Egyptian pharaohs had no problem using any phrase they wanted to. They oftentimes were very, uh, they were hyperbole, way over the top. Um, not necessarily a whole lot of truth to them. But they were things these kings wanted to be known by. They were aspiring to these things. They were throne names, names taken upon themselves to describe themselves as king. And there is some evidence even that um, Israelite kings or kings of Judah took on throne names as well, maybe given by themselves, given by God, given by others. 
I mean, the evidence is limited in this, and the names that we see are much more conservative. They're much more down to earth than the names, say, of the, the pharaohs. But even so, we see examples of, for instance, King David in Second Samuel chapter 23. King David is described as David, son of Jesse, the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the singer of Israel's songs. These are titles. These are phrases that describe who David is. And in the same way, we come here to Isaiah chapter 9 and see four key phrases that describe this coming king, the Messiah. They are describing his character. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And I want to dig into these because I think these descriptions really help us to see that Jesus is worthy of our wholehearted devotion. Because these, these titles are describing Jesus who came 700 years later. The first title is Wonderful Counselor. And when we see here this word wonderful, I think this word can get watered down in today's culture because, you know, it's used in all kinds of different contexts. Maybe your friend tells you, hey, I got a raise at work. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Your child brings home a craft from school. Here, Mommy, here's something I made for you. Oh, that's wonderful, Billy. I love this. Let me hang it up in the refrigerator. I mean, you, get, you're, you come home and your wife says, Hey, a box from Amazon came from you today. Wonderful. I was waiting for that. Or so you get a knock on the door and some stranger comes and is standing out there and says, Hey, I'm so sorry. I was backing up my car. I didn't see you there. You were there. I ran into it. Oh, just wonderful. I mean, we use this term in a variety of different ways, and I think it gets watered down. You think about the root of this word, it's the term wonder. It's this idea of awe, of something extraordinary that happens. And that's a, that's a picture of how the Hebrew word behind this word, wonderful, really meant. It's a word that means supernaturally extraordinary. When this word is used in the Old Testament... It's almost always used of, to describe God or to describe something supernatural that God does. For instance, in Genesis chapter 18, when, when God, through the angel of the Lord, is speaking to Abraham and Sarah, God tells Abraham and Sarah, hey, you all are going to have a little child. They're like, no way. Because they're, I mean, Abraham's almost 100 years old. Sarah's almost 90 years old. And Sarah, when she hears this, what does she do? She starts laughing. Because to her, this is insane. There's no way she's going to have a child when she's 90 years old. Then the angel of the Lord says to her, Sarah, why are you laughing? Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. That word for hard there is the same word here in, that's here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 for the word wonderful. Is anything too hard? Is anything too magnificent? Is anything too extraordinary for the Lord to accomplish? The answer, obviously, is No. It's something supernaturally extraordinary that God can do. Another example of this is in Psalm 139. King David is reflecting on the vast knowledge that God has of everything in the world, especially of people. King David is reflecting on the fact that, that God knows all of his thoughts. God knows every word that he's going to say even before he says it. That God knows everything that's going to happen in his life from beginning to end before David even lives it. God knows everything. And David's reflecting on this and is just in awe. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
It's too wonderful. It's the same word. It's too, too extraordinary, too magnificent. It's something that's beyond my ability to fathom. It's supernatural. And so when we come here and see this description of wonderful counselor, we have to recognize that it's talking about something that's supernaturally extraordinary. And specifically, it has to do with being a counselor. Now, when we think of counselors, we probably think of like Dr. Phil, Oprah, um, Dave Ramsey, people who give advice. Um, you may think of a counselor or a therapist that you might go to down the street or something like that. Um, we think of maybe your Facebook friends um, who are, you seek advice from. I mean, that's where many people today go for advice. We can seek advice and counsel from any number of different places. We need to recognize that, that there is one source of the best advice, and that's God. And this picture here of a counselor is a picture of a wise planner, someone who plans things out. Back in that world in which Isaiah is writing, a counselor would oftentimes be an advisor to the king, someone who is wise, someone who is helping the king make wise decisions. But here, this Messiah is described as a wonderful counselor, someone who has supernaturally extraordinary wisdom to plan out everything that is going to happen. We have to recognize that if Messiah, and actually since Jesus the Messiah, is the wonderful counselor, he is fully trustworthy. He's fully trustworthy. I think a lot of people in our society struggle to really release control of their lives to anyone else. And we think we need to be in the driver's seat of our life. But I would have the question, if you are struggling to release control of your life to God, why? Why are you struggling to trust him? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid that you're not going to be able to accomplish the dreams that you have in your life? Well, I think that's a lot of people's fear. And the reality is that when we do submit our lives to God, there's a decent chance he might change our dreams. I mean, he says in Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But the reality is as we delight ourselves in the Lord, he very well might change the desires of our heart to align them more to his desires, to his great plan. I think of a lot of the dreams I've had in my life, they're never going to come to fruition I mean, I think at one point I had a dream of living in Vail, Colorado and skiing every day. I don't think that's ever going to happen. More recently, I had a dream of owning a Dodge Viper. <laughs> Doubt that's going to happen either. I've had uh, any variety of other career dreams and just a wide variety of dreams. They're probably never going to come to pass. Now, if I really set my mind to those things and decide I'm going to be the one in charge of my life, I could probably achieve some of those dreams. But you know what? When I'm in submission to God, those dreams become a thing of the past. But the thing is, God replaces those dreams with dreams and goals that are much greater. That's what happens when we submit ourselves to Jesus as our wonderful counselor. That, that he is trustworthy, that we can follow him, that he's going to give us a life that we cannot attain our, on our own. So Jesus, I mean, he is worthy of following because he is the wonderful counselor. He will lead us to true life, who is fully trustworthy. Everyone else, everything else will let us down at some point, but Jesus never will. He is the wonderful counselor. Now, the next phrase here is mighty God. 
The Hebrew for this, uh, for this name, Mighty God, is El Gabor. I, I just share that because it's something you might hear people refer to sometimes. El was a standard Hebrew word for God. Gabor is a word that means strong or mighty or powerful. Jesus is described here as the mighty God. And this, in that culture, is a huge statement. Now, you think about the Egyptian pharaohs. They had no problem uh, comparing themselves with God, saying they're a friend of God, saying that they may even be God themselves. But in that Israelite culture, it was a big deal to say that a person is God. It was blasphemy. It, it It was an offense that was worthy of the death penalty. People in the Israelite culture did not, did not flippantly say, oh, so-and-so is a mighty God. That's just not something you say. It's, I mean, it's kind of like you don't just go into an airport these days and yell, hey, I have a bomb. You don't say that, do you? Why? Because the, the cultural context says that is inappropriate. There's going to be some immediate action taken against you that's probably going to have long-term negative ramifications if you make that choice, if you make that type of statement. In the same way in the Israelite culture, if you come out and say, hey, I am God, or hey, this person is God, there are going to be some immediate ramifications that will probably last long term as well. I mean, Jesus experienced this. Over in John chapter 8 and John chapter 10, we see some interesting things going on. Jesus is in a conversation with the Jewish leaders. And he says, you know what? Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Jewish leaders said back to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus says, John 8, 58, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. That is a claim to deity, not only that he existed before Abraham, but the statement of I am is really claiming the name Yahweh, the most intimate name of God in Scripture. It says that this, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Over in chapter 10, um, very similar type of incident. Jesus is in a conversation with them. And it says again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You hear? If you claim to be God back in that culture, if you claim that someone else, some other human being is God, or if there is any God besides the one true God, you may very well be stoned for blasphemy. You're going to be killed, given the death penalty. And so it is not flippantly that Isaiah calls the Messiah mighty God. It is a huge statement. We have to understand that because Jesus was and is mighty God, he will fight for us and he will win. He is God. And this is a game changer because this sets Jesus apart from every other religious leader, every other advisor, everything else in this entire world. It sets Jesus apart because no one else can really make the claim to be God and back it up as Jesus did. Now, I think it's interesting if you talk with non-Christians much about this topic. If you're like me, I find many people who are not following Christ don't even know that Jesus claimed to be God. I bring this up in conversations with a lot of non-Christians. And, and when, I, when I say, do you know that Jesus claimed to be God? They'll be like, no, I didn't know that. And then it really oftentimes brings on a very fruitful conversation uh, where they're like, 
where we dig in the scripture, and they're like, wow, I never knew that. And it really pushes them to this point of decision. Because when you recognize Jesus as God, that's kind of like the trump card. You have to recognize, okay, the game is different now. There are a lot of non-Christians who do recognize this claim. who say, you know what? This shouldn't even be on the table. You, you shouldn't be able to claim that Jesus is God because that's too much of a trump card. It sets him above all the other religious leaders. You need to take that out of the equation. But I say that's bogus. I mean, you need to look and investigate for yourself. Okay, Jesus claimed to be God. He either is God or he isn't God. But you cannot just subtract all those parts of the Bible that say Jesus is God and think, oh, you're still going to have Christianity even if you take those out because the, uh, the deity of Christ is at the very core of the essence of Christianity. We have to understand that the idea of Jesus being God did not originate in the New Testament. There are many places in the Old Testament that already talk about Jesus being God. For instance, Isaiah 9, 6 that we're looking at. Isaiah seven fourteen, where it says, The virgin will conceive, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a name that means God with us. So in Jesus, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we celebrate the fact that God has come to this earth in the form of a human being. And so because Jesus is mighty God, he will fight for us and he will win when we place ourselves on his team. When we place ourselves as a follower of Christ, he will fight for us. And that makes a huge difference to have someone fighting for you who can win. Because oftentimes when we face battles in life, we fight them ourselves. Or we look to our own human wisdom and human resources to fight those battles. But we'll struggle. We'll get weary. But God will never struggle. He will never get weary. I think of how, um, just a little illustration, back when I was in middle school, um, there were a couple bullies um, who um, were kind of coming after me for a little while. I was probably in maybe sixth, seventh grade. Um, I was certainly not a, a physically intimidating specimen at that point. Not that I am now, um, much less so then than now. Um, and there were these two boys who moved to our school from different schools, but they picked me out as a target of their bullying. And, you know, I talked to my parents some about that, but there's only so much that can be done in a locker room um, after gym class when there aren't any teachers or anyone around. And one day they were really coming after me. I kind of got fed up. We got in a little bit of a scuffle. But I'm in big trouble where, I mean, this little tiny toothpick type of guy um, getting in a little scuffle with much larger guys. All of a sudden, one of my friends comes over, Derek. And he starts messing with them a little bit. Derek, he was a football player. Even somehow already in sixth or seventh grade, he had this reputation as a fighter. Uh, I don't, I mean, I never actually experienced it except for this point. But, but he was a guy you do not mess with. And Derek was there. He was standing up for me. And he basically made it very clear that you do not mess with Brandon. That is what it's like to have someone who's strong and mighty at your side. We have someone much stronger than Derek at our side, and that is the mighty God. Jesus wants to fight our battles for us. We get weary and tired fighting our own battles, but we can turn to him. He may not always fight them in the way that we want them in the timing that we want it, but he is still trustworthy. He will fight for us, and he will win. So this is another reason why Jesus is worthy of following. The third uh, the third title here is Everlasting Father. Now, this is a title that has confused many people, many Christians through the years, because they look at the Trinity and wonder, okay, you have the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three, uh, three persons in one God, a unity there. 
How does that work? Because it's very clear. Jesus is God the Son. He's not God the Father. So why is Jesus here in Isaiah 9 called the everlasting Father? Well, what we need to recognize here is that Father is a reference to Jesus' heart, not to his being. Now, that may be a little bit confusing to figure out, but, but it's a reference to Jesus' heart. He has a fatherly heart. He's not father in his being saying that, I mean, there is a heresy out there called modalism um, or called oneness theology that says that, that God just appears in different forms at different times. Sometimes he appears as father, sometimes as son, sometimes as spirit. It's not that type of thing. That's, that's a heresy. That's not biblical. We're not saying that Jesus is the father because Jesus is the son. That's his being. But he has a heart of a father. Let me give you another illustration of this. Uh, I'm going to switch the metaphors a little bit. My wife, Shelly, uh, while I was in seminary, is a nanny for a number of different families. And she became very close with those families and especially with the children. Now, technically, she was not a mother at that point. She just became a mother uh, a few years ago once we moved here to Port Washington, a mother to Micaiah and Tehila. But that does not mean that she was not motherly to these children. I mean, she comforted them when they were sad. She got them dressed for the day. She changed their diapers. She potty trained them. She, she helped them learn to speak. She cared for them as a mother would care for children, even though she was not technically their mother. It's kind of that same thing here with calling Jesus the everlasting father. That he has a fatherly spirit, a spirit that cares for people. A spirit that wants to see, uh, see his children grow up to be responsible, loving, mature human beings. He has a spirit, um, a fatherly spirit that at times will discipline children, but he does it because he loves them. That's a picture of who Jesus is. And because Jesus is the everlasting father, he will shepherd us toward true life. Now, Jesus, at one point in his ministry, said he looked out at crowds of people and he said, you know what, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But Jesus came to be that shepherd, to shepherd us towards life. There are so many things we can pursue in this world that do not bring us life. There is nothing on our iPhones that can bring us life. There is nothing in our money that can bring us true life. There is nothing in possessions or even relationships with others who can bring us true life, but Jesus can. And because he's the everlasting father, he wants to shepherd us towards that true life. And finally here we see this Messiah, this coming king, Jesus, described as the prince of peace. Now peace here, as we talked about last week, is the word shalom. It it means wholeness, flourishing, vitality. It's not merely the lack of strife and war, even though that is a great thing. It's amazing how in our world, no matter how hard people try they cannot attain full peace. I mean, I think of like the League of Nations. I think of the United Nations, these, these conglomerations of countries that have worked very hard to try to maintain world peace. I mean, they may succeed in various little spheres, but at the same time, there are so many uh, wars and, and battles still taking place. And we see on a personal level as well, this strife in a family, strife in a workplace, strife in a church, can drain us like almost nothing else. And we long for peace and wholeness and vitality. That's why Jesus came. He is the Prince of Peace. Peace ultimately begins with God. 
And Jesus came to give us that sort of peace through his death on the cross to reconcile us with him. And after we have peace with God, then we can be ambassadors of peace, uh, peacemakers in our relationships with those around us. And we can look forward to Jesus' kingdom, which is based on this shalom, on this peace, on this wholeness. And because Jesus is the Prince of Peace, he will create conditions for us to thrive. We will begin to experience that thriving here as we experience peace with God and experience peace with others. And we can look forward to the day in his kingdom when we will experience that peace in its fullness. So I think these four titles, as we look at them, give us a great reason to see that Jesus is worthy of following because he is the wonderful counselor who will wisely guide us. He is the mighty God who will have the power to protect us and the power to carry out his plans for us where we are weak. He is the everlasting father who will shepherd us to true life. And he is the prince of peace who will lead us to vitality and wholeness. There's nothing else in this world that can promise these things. I mean, there are a lot of empty promises out there, but nothing else that can fulfill in the way that Jesus can. I want to challenge us and encourage us in this Christmas season as we celebrate the birth of Christ to remember the greatness of who he is and to make fresh commitments to follow him wholeheartedly. And the way we do that, I mean, we can do that through activities, through reading the Bible, through praying, through church activities, stuff like that. But the greatest way of all is to simply see Jesus more and more clearly. Because as we see Jesus for who he is, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as glorious, our heart will be set on following him. Everything else will pale in comparison. That's what happens when you have something that becomes your all-consuming passion. I remember back when I was a teenager, probably about 14 years old or so, I set my heart on a radio control car. Now, this was not an ordinary radio control car. Don't think Walmart, Radio Shack, Tyco. This was a radio control car that cost $400. For a 14-year-old back in the 90s, that was a lot of money. This is a car that comes in a box in about 2,000 pieces. You spend about 20 hours putting it together. You have to buy all the components separately. But I set my heart on this thing. I got this peanut jar that I emptied out, and I put a picture of the car on the side of it. And that was where I kept all my money. I kept asking my parents over and over, what can I do to make money? I cleaned out closets. I cleaned out the garage. I mowed yards. I did every single thing I could to make money. When my birthday came around, I asked for money from everyone. When Christmas came around, I asked for money from everyone. Birthdays and Christmas helped a lot because making like $2 an hour or $3 or whatever I made is not a way to accumulate $400 all that quickly. But over time, I was able to get enough money to buy that radio control car. I was passionate about it. I had this vision, this focus. How did I do that? I mean, not many 14-year-olds can raise $400 like that. But I, was, I did that because I had that passion, that focus. I, it, was a, it was a consuming passion. I thought it was worth it. So I pursued it. And that is a picture of what can happen when we see something as worthy of our devotion. That if you see uh, pleasure as worthy of your ultimate devotion, leisure, money, success in your work, you're going to pursue that with wholehearted devotion. My prayer is that Jesus will be at the top of our devotion list. Not 5, 6, 12, 20, anything like that. But that we will see Jesus with such clarity that we will see his glory so clearly that we will want nothing else more than him. 
that we will say with the Apostle Paul, I consider everything else a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all praise. And we confess that we so easily, Lord, get our eyes and our vision clouded. Because we see things in this world that glitter, that sparkle, that look attractive, and that do satisfy, but only temporarily, Lord. Think back to my radio-controlled car, where it is now, how how I haven't used it for 20 years. It's not even operable any longer. It was a treasure that I pursued that now doesn't matter to me any longer. And Lord, there are so many things in our lives that we can pursue passionately now that we think are going to fulfill us, but they do not. Yet then we look at Jesus and realize that he is something different. That he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And he is worthy of our full devotion. And Lord, I pray that you will do a work in our hearts. Each one of us needs this work, Lord, to take away the scales from our eyes and the hardness from our hearts so that we will have a desire and a passion to follow Jesus with wholehearted devotion. And as we do so, that we will see that he is worthy and that we will experience the life that he has to offer. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to offer us life and life abundantly. We pray these things in your name. Amen.